gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. Yeah, I said, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique was perfect. These odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 democracy manifest. Welcome to the Culture in Anarchy podcast. For more audio and videos, please subscribe to the Culture in Anarchy podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. And follow me by my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. If you'd like to make a small contribution to the show through my Patreon account, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. And if you haven't already, go ahead and stop by iTunes and leave a great rating for our show. We have just released our first edition of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine. The issue is available on our website, and print copies can be ordered through most online retailers. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non Part 7 The Incompatibility of Marx and Derrida. Continue. Let us assume value production in a one-world factory scenario. According to the cost of production theory of value, when the Bowman Baseball Card Company printed a Mickey Mantle rookie card in 1951, the amount of labor put into the card was fixed, in the Marxian system of capitalism, by the labor power of the worker its variable labor, and the factory's machinery, its fixed labor. Hence, the value of the Mickey Mantle rookie card was forever fixed. The labor invested in the card was objectively determined by the factory worker's timesheet and productivity, the cost of maintaining machinery, and then weighed against the profit made by the Bowman Baseball Card Company in the eventual sale of its products to adults at a historical price paid on the spot, who would then exchange those cards with children in kind as a gift or as a favor. The children would collect the cards, trade the cards amongst themselves, and seek to complete parts of their collections. Nowhere in this exchange relation can we measure the unseen feature of competition, 
the recognition that baseball cards are desirable for parents on a budget, since they are a small expenditure when compared to a porcelain doll that the child wants more. The historical price of a pack of Bowman cards also contains marginal valuations made by parents comparing available and competing means. Since the card would sell for more than the goods, the capital outlay, and labor put into the card, the capitalist reaped the surplus value, or profit, that should, here we see the temporary normative Marxian appeal to property rights for the laborer that Marx also rejects in whole in theory by appealing to universalized loot, but which he understood were necessary for capitalism, the profit should have been paid to the laborer. How could the capitalist get greater value, or a greater return from the initial stock of goods and labor, without cheating his employees of the full produce of their labor? Marx, in all fairness, did not believe, even in a socialist paradise, that workers could ever get the full produce of their labor. But he believed that profit should be owned communally in regard to social need by eliminating private property. We thus see that rejection of property rights is the means socialism utilizes to usurp capitalism. Theft, fraud, coercion, and violence undermine the free market. How social need was not market demand was very difficult to explain, and some Marxists agree that they are consignificant terms. But if social need is market demand, and market demand is the source of production, as well as the limiting factor on prices and profits, then market demand was the source, in Marx's eyes, of its own oppression and exploitation. The desire for baseball cards, fruit, meat, or even clean drinking water, and perhaps even leisure hours, is thus a desire for subservience to one's desires. These latter things are things of property, which is a subversion of an economy of objectively determinate needs. His was not a view that capitalism was inherently evil. His was a view that something better could be obtained if someone told everyone else what to do and how much of what everyone else earned that everyone else should be allowed to keep. This is impossible in a free society. Does the same hold true of social need? What is social need? Is not social need the individual's valuation of one source of relief of a felt uneasiness against an alternative or even abstention from human action? My father once owned several copies of Mickey Mantle's rookie card, several of which he may have placed into the spokes of his bicycle as a child to mimic the sound of a motorcycle when pedaling his bike. He had several other copies of various Mickey Mantle cars that his mother eventually threw away in the trash when he went off to college at Eastern Michigan University. She saw them as silly childish trinkets that took up useful closet space. Millions of card collectors throughout the United States can share similar stories concerning the fate of their childhood baseball card collections, and millions can attest to the fact that they purchased and traded cards as children to obtain the scarcest of the cards. These scarce cards were the desirable players who happened to be hitting at a high average whenever children engaged in collecting and trading. If one chanced to procure a double, which was the procurement of two copies of the same card, or an increase in the marginal unit of a particular player's card, one generally traded that double to collectors looking to get their hands on that player's card to compete with collection for psychic satisfaction, or because they liked that player for whatever reason. Perhaps he was handsome, witty, or charming. Perhaps he was the first black player. Perhaps he was an increase in the marginal unit of black baseball players, and therefore was a cultural symbol. Perhaps also, we must admit the possibility, some white player was a vocal opponent to black infiltration of professional sports and thus satisfied the margins of racist collectors. 
An increase in the marginal unit of a baseball card allowed one to shop around for the cards that one needed to fill one's own collection, yet without risking the loss of the first unit to the peril of the completeness of one's own collection. An increase in the marginal unit of a baseball card allowed one to shop around for the cards that one needed to fill one's own collection, yet without risking the loss of the first unit to the peril of the completeness of one's own collection. Even then, the size of the collection was subjectively defined. Perhaps whole teams, all-star units, dream teams, or the entire press run of cards. Some baseball fans are notoriously fickle, even as others are uncommonly devoted to a home team and its most loyal players. Some trade cards just to get the card with the cool picture on the front. As a child, I sometimes traded baseball cards to get my hands on the best slam dunks on the face of the cards. I also traded to get my hands on some of the most ridiculous and buffoon-like pictures, which I laughed about in my idle time when showing them off to friends while cracking jokes. Usually the clumsy-looking photos of Kurt Rambis, who was a who was not an altogether bad player for the Lakers, but who wore nerdy black-rimmed glasses and a ridiculous mustache, as I so perceived it to be. Italian-Americans and Irish-Bostonians are incredibly loyal to ethnically Italian and ethnically Irish players of their respective ethnicities. Italian New Yorkers, for instance, were incredibly attached to the slugger and hitter Joe Giuseppe Paolo DiMaggio. It could so fall out that an ethnically Italian baseball card collector might not, on point of principle, trade a Yankee for any Red Sox player, or vice versa. The subjective valuations of card collectors are legion. Cards that bear the marks of misprints or typos, called errors, are in high demand, since those cards are scarce even though they happen to be defective. An error can regularly add 50 cents to the face value of the least demanded player's card in a given year, even though the error consists only in a typographical error. As long as a particular player's card was highly valued by those who did not have the card, the card remained in high demand. In 1950, a single double of a Joe DiMaggio baseball card could fetch many cards of the players that an individual might prefer over the marginal unit of the DiMaggio card. A Yogi Berra might fetch a Ned Garver, and perhaps a Jackie Robinson might fetch a Willie Mays. But it would generally take the cards of many average players to fetch a single Yogi Berra in an even trade. In actual trade, judged more valuable than the original state of affairs to every participant. The price was not the value. It was instead evidence of prior valuation. Mickey Mantle's price certainly skyrocketed after he permanently replaced Joe DiMaggio in center field for the New York Yankees, since the latter Hall of Famer retired at the end of the 1951 season. Mickey Mantle's rookie card was a commodity of very little empirical value, as evidenced by price, in 1951 compared to today. One could get a copy of the card and a stick of gum for less than 10 cents by purchasing several packs of baseball cards, but the relative scarcity of mint-conditioned Mickey Mantle rookie cards in the market today makes them incredibly valuable to collectors. How could one explain, according to the Marxian theory of value and surplus profit, that a Bowman Mickey Mantle rookie card will now sell for roughly $20,000, and a Topps rookie card for nearly three times that value? Has the labor value of the 1951 factory workers' produce increased? Bowman certainly has not increased its profits based on the current exchange value of a Mickey Mantle rookie card on the antique market. Furthermore, Bowman certainly could not counterfeit those cards this year by reprinting them with the original plates and fetch $20,000 per card from the new issues. 
And were we to discover a stockpile of original Mickey Mantle rookie cards in some abandoned Bowman warehouse, sufficient to give each and every person on Earth a Mickey Mantle rookie card, what is the likelihood that the card will fetch $20,000? Should we undertake such an endeavor with the intent of improving the wealth of humankind? Would that not be counterproductive? Given these considerations, how can one explain that a 1951 stick of Bowman bubblegum will not fetch a penny in the market of gum today without positing the subjectivity of value and meaning alongside the precondition of scarcity in the consideration of supply and demand? To be sure, sticks of 1951 Bowman bubblegum are likely, though I do not know this to be true, to be even more scarce than Mickey Mantle rookie cards. The principle at the root of the problem is the fundamental principle in economics outside of the Smithian, Ricardian, Marxian paradigm. Scarcity. Sticks of 1951 bubblegum may be scarce, but alternatives to stale, nearly tasteless, crunchy pieces of ratty gum can be found in every convenience store. There are not many original Mickey Mantle rookie cards in mint condition, even though there are mint condition rookie cards of other players but there are many cheap alternatives to that 1951 stick of gum that will taste a whole lot better than it will. If gum were outlawed today and very few people could get a stick of newly packaged gum, no doubt even a ratty stick of 1951 gum might fetch a nice price to the right chewer. What labor could have gone into a Mickey Mantle rookie card that has survived into the present by sitting in a cardboard box in some collector's closet for nearly 70 years? Does this not trouble the idea of idle resources? Why do commodities not trade for labor values? The answer is simple. Because commodities do not trade for labor values. Cost of production, pay for labor, and marginal productivity, for sure, are an important consideration in production. But they are not the factor of value. They are a means to serving a wider market and controlling costs and prices sufficient to maintain profit margins. If we accept these premises, and I do not see how we cannot accept them, then the entire capitalist exploitation theory at the root of Marxian economics is seen to be patently and undeniably false. To maintain otherwise, in order to uphold the Marxian system of almost economics, one would have to argue that the Bowman factory worker of 1951 has been swindled out of the full value of his produce, the 2,000% increase in his labor value since 1951, and that every card collector in possession of a Mickey Mantle rookie card now owes the historical factory worker a 2,000% rate of return on his investment. To maintain otherwise is to say that a historical exchange, the original 1951 purchase, is the real exchange value of labor, and the real measure of surplus value for the Bowman Company in 1951, and that the future exchange value is not tied to labor or surplus value. Furthermore, this state of revaluation over time is evidence of a great injustice that should cause every moral man to revolt and tear down the system of private property, individual valuation, and economics. The preceding argument is, admittedly, a reductio ad absurdum. But the absurdity here does not lie in the facts of baseball card manufacturing and antique collection. The absurdity lies in the attempt to salvage a Marxian economic theory from Marx's disastrous analysis. Value is not, as Marx insisted, a plan. Economy does not follow a prescribed theory that is first circulated, agreed upon, 
and then enacted as a byproduct of the material productive forces equipping current production at this stage in history. Increasing margins and decreasing scarcity draws people towards self-interest, since it increases one's attachment to private property over theft and groupthink, since one wishes to protect one's property from the predations of those who are jealous instruments of a coercive herd mentality. An earnest Marxian would have to be able to explain subjective exchange values even in a baseball card economy in order to uphold the fallacious theory of surplus profit and capitalist exploitation as the objective determination of costs and profits in any critique of capitalism and in any system of market exchanges. Then, after positing that theory, the Marxian would have to explain how human actions, and valuation itself, can be something other than an individual using scarce means with alternative uses in space and time. I would never argue that a card collector who owns a Mickey Mantle rookie card now owes the historical factory worker 2,000% of the card's value, or even some kind of return to Bowman to compensate for the surplus value that was created. Nor do I believe that even most Marxians would. Why should the collector be punished for what took place in the 60 years since the card's production, which incidentally increased the scarcity of Mickey Mantle rookie cards. For all intents and purposes, there is no difference between the card-collecting economy of children and the market at large. We do not require the arbitrarily selected passage of 60 years either. We may accept 60 seconds or milliseconds if we so choose. An economy is not a static system. Since it is impossible to reduce all exchanges to the labor value metaphysically invested in things... The Marxians are committed to a bankrupt and fallacious system of almost economics, much like their neo-Ricardian brethren in contemporary macroeconomics and Keynesian theory. An exchange value, or a price, the splitting of semantic differences in a conversation or an interpretation, can only develop where individuals prefer what they obtain more than what they give up in the exchange. One thing that individuals always give up is the perception of the imminence of scarcity in Darth. Now, a Marxian may believe that socialism will decrease the imminence of scarcity in Darth if only society will give up capitalism, individual rights, and private property. But the argument must be made with regard to individuals and not to abstractions. It must confront the issue that anything else than voluntary exchange is robbery, or perhaps its politically convenient cousin, taxation, and that the harmony of self-interest in exchange is preferable to coercion, or else the exchange would not have occurred. Robinson Crusoe may ration his time and energy, his labor, for many ends, and he may choose to build a shelter before he builds a fire. But if he expends too much energy to gather in fire-building materials, or if by chance it rains, he may perish of thirst or even malaria, even though he is surrounded by oceans and has a pool of fresh water, which will need to be purified by boiling, nearby on the island. Nature contains all of the means, but a good many of those means are calculated to kill a man, not because they were designed to do so, but because man cannot live upon unpurified water outside of shelter, likely requiring fire to increase his productivity in purifying water, with any great hope of everlasting success against the threat of scarcity in Darth. The question then remains as to why a disinterested Marxian would try to cobble together a theory of value from Marx's bizarre system of valuation instead of accepting a theory of value that covers not only a market economy and a barter-based economy, but also the problems encountered by an autistic socialist economy and the antique art economy. It seems that if Marxians could have things their way, 
Marx's mystical writings could provide a different theory of value for every industry in existence. A theory of value for the ditch digger, one for the prostitute, another one for the pimp, and yet another for the Marxian book publisher. The possibilities of capitalist exploitation are boundless as long as we reason as Marx reasoned. That is, if we beg the question and proclaim an anti-rationalist epistemology, cogitamus ergo sum. We think, therefore I am. Most moths drawn to the flame of a Marxian social theory and economics are drawn to that flame because they perceive it as anti-establishment, as the philosophy of the underdog. Others mistakenly perceive in it the traces of charity, a charity in reality conducted at the point of a gun, the universalization of theft, and the threat of the gulag. I always cringe when men and women dismiss socialism as impractical, but believe that it is a noble ideal. There is nothing ideal in it. Giving up what one does not yet have or robbing one's neighbors is a plan for death. Charity is a fine industry, as a self-interested lessening of one's margins out of concern for one's fellow man, with lesser margins. Engineered famine is an atrocity. Socialism is not charity. It is engineered atrocity. Granted, the capitalist world requires the prosecution of theft, coercion, and violence at the point of a gun and the threat of a prison. The question then must be answered as to how individuals have rights, whether they have rights, and whether private property is an aberration or a fundamental axiom of existence. Do individuals own themselves, or are they owned? Both ideologies, capitalists and socialists, tend to reject slavery. And yet, public ownership of peoples and private ownership of peoples can only exist by violating an individual's ownership of himself or herself. And thus, property rights, we understand, are at the base of any concept of liberty. An individual owns himself and his creative faculties. Should he also own what is produced with that body in mind as long as he does not engage in violence and coercion? Capitalism follows that train of thought. Marxism rejects a man's ownership of goods outside of himself. When a producer undertakes a line of production and throws the good out into the market for sale, if nobody buys the good, the producer's insistent on the good's utility will not earn a rate of return unless the market should find a use for that good. This same relation obtains to relevance in any field of literary interpretation when an author throws out a particular work. The law of marginal utility quickly cleaned the floor with objective value theories in economics during the 1870s, working from the individual at the root of the capitalist system, but not to say the bottom, to the social need of demand that determines exchange values in a functioning market. As noted before, Marx, like Smith and Ricardo before him, was forced to later contradict his own labor theory of value, particularly his surplus value theory, because things do not exchange based on labor values. We ought to say labor costs alone. And even Marx knew this to be true. Simply put, Marx ignored that the consumer has all the power in capitalism's anarchic mode of production as the agent of demands and subjective interests, and that even the capitalist is a consumer who would, just like his exploited laborers, seek to buy in the cheapest market with his own subjective valuations. This deduction is valid, but Marx was more committed to socialism, N, than logical consistency and argumentation, N-1, the marginal unit. He saw that as goods increase, prices would also increase. This assumption is true if we also assume a free market money system not under inflationary government direction. And yet, the idea that increased access to scarce resources, 
an increase in alternatives across the board that results in lower prices with more margins satisfied can still be immensely profitable. It is not that prices tend towards a flat line. Instead, it is that prices tend towards an equilibrium where supply meets demand in coordination with one another, until interrupted by natural disasters, government actions, and competition or innovation. Prices and wages, the price of labor, can both fall and still not decrease real wealth. If real wealth increases on the margin and productivity increases, thus allowing for more leisure. But as long as capital remains in private hands, the tendency is everywhere a movement towards increased wealth. Marx fell into his value trap by focusing on the difference between macro variables, statistical exchange relations, reflected in historical market prices, rather than the individual valuations that make up market prices in theory. In this way, we see a bit of the Marxist in the structuralist focus on language in the aggregate, and we see where deconstruction tended towards subjectivity and value. Value is always surplus. It is a preference for one state of affairs over another, where the latter is deemed ex-ante as less preferable. A similar critique was leveled at structuralism in the first section of this paper, for the same error of intrinsic value was curious to both systems. Prices cannot sprout Athena-like from the brow of zoos. In Marx's system, the exploited laborers did not have their own sets of time preferences. That is, they did not prefer present goods more than future and therefore uncertain goods to justify their apparent exploitation. listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com. If you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list, you'll receive access to free ebooks, including the text for A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction and in March 2017, The Spirit of Market Anarchy. Coming up later this year on the Culture and Anarchy podcast, we will be debuting several episodic series. First up, the Shadow of All Doubts, in which I chronicle sketches from the history of skepticism and free thought by analyzing conflicts between individualists and both state and church. The other series that will premiere are The Heist, historical sketches from the world's gold confiscations, which begins with the story of King Philip IV and the Knights Templar and proceeds all the way through FDR and beyond. Another series, The Jacobin Book Club, Neoconservatism, A Requiem, and finally, a rationalist take on the history of literary criticism. Towards the end of the year, we will be moving to a work of philosophy and religion entitled The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, wherein I lay out the world's first argument from grammar. Atheists and theists may in fact both be incorrect. 
where it concerns the rational concept of God, insofar as the concept of a rationally conceived God arises out of a priori grammar. There's lots of exciting developments coming up, so please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. not productive if nobody buys the product produced. The capitalist earns profit because he purchases the capital against an uncertain future, and his investment, just like any investment, must yield a return for any productive action at all to be profitable or satisfactory in the long run. He who takes the greatest risk earns the biggest share, or perhaps the biggest debt, if consumers should frown upon his endeavors. Factory workers do not always want to take the same risks in that industry, or else do not have the means at hand. If they seek those means, then they must produce the means, but they will take risks as consumers. If literary critics of postmodern academia cry out for the downfall of a literary canon on Marx's grounds in order to establish a standard of egalitarian text, then clearly those critics value Marx's system over the textual capitalist like Milton, Shakespeare, and Browning. If they value Marx's system, then they must on point of principle show how Marx's system is logically consistent. To this date, such a feat has never been attempted. We are instead told that Marx's system is preferable, even though his theory of capitalism does not reflect reality. Milton, Browning, and Shakespeare remain three of the most demanding authors in the English language tradition, and they remain at the head of the canon for no other reason than that they have been so preferred throughout time for their just representations of human nature, in which even Marxian critics find much capital for their exertions. Even devoted Marxians spend much time in their most lauded treatises dealing with those same authors, but with an internal longing for some alternative version of the text. In order to maintain his profits, a capitalist must continue to risk present goods by investing in an uncertain future in more cost-effective operation in order to please the larger part of humankind. He makes his goods cheaper to stimulate demand, and in order to keep up with demand, he hires more workers to increase productivity. Shakespeare, in the abstract, did the same in the concrete. This is to say, the man, or group of men, that we call Shakespeare, produced plays for profit, then hired more players, and eventually built a large theater in order to cater to an increase in demand for increased productivity on his own part as a playwright. Shakespeare was a capitalist, or perhaps the chiefest and most revered capitalist exploiter in Britain's history. He produced what the market demanded, in accordance and not in wild abundance, to social need, which was market demand. The real wealth of a nation is in its capital accumulation, and capital accumulation may in fact rise even if nominal money wages decrease. No humans, and no god for that matter, could act but upon such conditions. Workers who value present goods over uncertain future goods take advantage of the capitalist's promise to pay for work done in advance of the profit obtained by his enterprise, since the production that the workers engage in has yet to bear fruit, and in fact, may never bear fruit in the long run. Present profits, as rates of return, are always the profit on past work. Future profits are always the expectation that present work will turn out successful. 
if Shakespeare pays his present players upon the profits of his past play, hoping to yield an even greater return with his next play, then he risks his outlay by estimating his own worth to the world. Even if the company tanks in the capitalist economy, the workers are paid from the advanced capital. They have future employment if they do a good enough job to satisfy the other workers and producers sitting in the globe. The workers have all the power in this arrangement, all of the temptation to succeed and to further their careers, but the capitalist earns the biggest share when he succeeds because he takes the biggest risk by paying workers for uncertain and yet-to-be-determined future profits. He must rate his worth at the market price against his competitors and not at some abstract sum. Wages are paid from past profits accruing to savvy entrepreneurs. They do not magically spring from the luminiferous ether. Throughout the Restoration era, playwrights were paid only on the third night. If the play did not stimulate enough demand to remain on the stage for three nights, then the playwright received nothing for his labors except the force given his name by reviewers. If the play lasted for more than three nights, then the playwright received all of the profits from every successive night. This arrangement did not yield a scarcity of plays and texts. Quite the opposite. It yielded intense competition, better plays, as audiences of the time determined based on their valuations, gossip, and some critics' opinions, and more theaters. The playwright had a specific interest in catering to the audience or challenging its mores with popular scandals and controversy in order to maximize his payout by generating a buzz about his or her play. Furthermore, playhouses became a concentrated sphere of adulterated attractions, where fruit sellers and prostitutes convened to entice more audience members to attend, to provide repeat consumption and loyalty. Now, fundamentalist Marxists treat their sacred texts as rigidly defined. Das Kapital, like the fundamentalist scripture, means what it means and there is no room for subjectivity. If those texts are self-contradictory in a logical sense, and if capitalist exploitation can be shown to be a myth, then the fault lies in the reader's use of logic, or so the argument generally goes. This is a bit like the sloganeering of Muslims, who argue that interpretations of scripture that jihadists employ in their own defense are invalid, since Islam is a religion of peace. Perhaps. (laughs) But if Islam is a religion of peace, and if jihadis are not peaceful and do not understand scripture then we must admit that a great many individuals who self-identify as Muslims and who quote the Quran are hypocrites and liars. And if we find that the Quran does justify lying, theft, imperialism, the caliphate, and sexism, namely socialist sex controls, then we must admit that anyone who argues that Islam is a religion of peace must face the fact that either Islam is not justified by the Quran, or else that the Islam is a religion of peace sloganeer is wrong, is a liar, or is a hypocrite. He might also be a madman. In a similar vein, the committed Marxists suggest that we must figure out what Marx meant, since what Marx really meant is the defining value for which Marxism must exchange in every reader-writer transaction. If Marx is wrong, then Marx is only wrong because we have not pressed ourselves into the correct mold that Marx might then burn away the base metal of self in representation to arrive at a perfectly fashioned golden ring stamped in Marx's image. Marx's labor was objectively defined in his value as a writer, and his logic cannot be flawed because he is the founder of Marxism, 
his logic is rigidly expressed in his value as Marxism's first laborer upon the surplus profit element within the cost of production theory of value and the labor theory of value, or not, depending on who is evaluating his theory. Because Marx labored upon Das Kapital for a good portion of his life, and because the last two sections of the work seem to have been largely the produce of his more organized English shade, Friedrich Engels, Das Kapital surely has an enormous amount of labor value invested in it. Unfortunately, no one has ever figured out what Marx meant in an objective sense because self-contradictions entail methodological errors. Ironically, this realization undercuts Marx's entire system of labor value, class conflict, and almost economics. Adherents to the cause have expended a century's worth of labor, utilizing capitalistic publishers, truckers, printers, traders, and market prices to show how these methods of distribution cannot possibly be satisfactory to the alternatives. There is something religious in Marx's remaining adherence that denies reality. Those critics amongst us who have claimed to understand Marx have understood him to be a self-contradictory, almost economist, and almost philosopher, and we have dismissed his works as monuments to nonsense because he is riddled with inconsistencies and illogic. This is not to say that Marx was a villain and intellectually dishonest, though some of us may throw out that judgment based on his libercidal propaganda campaigns in the name of Catholic feudalism. Marx was not all wrong, but his system was all wrong. He spotted a flaw in Smith and Ricardo, as had many contemporaries who were also free market economists, like Jean-Baptiste Say. Marx was a brilliant economist and researcher who made enormous errors, just like Smith, Ricardo, and Mill before him. He followed the bread trail of the labor theory of value. Marxians, on the other hand, insist that Marx could not have been wrong. He had to be correct even if he was incorrect. Capitalism had to be evil, and socialism had to be the answer. Why is it the answer if capitalist exploitation is a myth? The answer is, well, because the prevailing ideology of positivism, Catholic empiricism, and positive law in the realm of human action cannot cope without it. In Marx's system, the metaphysics of presence would disappear for society itself would become one giant cost that has sacrificed every individual will in the absence of individual valuation, which, as an aggregate, is called demand. We could always critique that presence as a mere metaphysical notion that contradicted human nature, but surely at our own risk. In a way, if we were to accept Marx's theory of exploitation, we would have to acknowledge that by insisting on logic and consistency, we are ourselves textual capitalists, forever withholding the surplus value that we ought to surrender to Marx's objective meaning through the socialization of interpretation. In other words, we would have to keep the faith and sacrifice rational coherence. If we did not like life under the Marxian machine, the error would lie in valuation and rational thought, not in Catholic feudalism. This is why the notion that somehow communism and socialism are moral doctrines fails upon the first line of analysis. If the doctrines are enshrined by coercion and aggression, as opposed to warding off coercion and aggression in a property rights-driven free market, there is no moral groundwork. Marxians wish to clothe themselves in the finery of reason and logic, yet to shirk all of the financial responsibilities that come along with the nifty tailoring. As a result, 
They have continually tried to socialize their intellectual arrears over the course of two centuries, and they have so far succeeded by watering down their program to a basic capitalist exploitation theory that is hanging on to credibility by a single strand of faith in literature departments across the world. Deconstruction has proven a convenient tool for academic Marxians, but deconstruction we see is inherently at odds with the objective conservatism of Marxian theory. The objective qualification for the sufficiency of means to obtain ends for the sake of satisfaction always bears out in human action, but only for an individual actor based on the subjective satisfaction of wants. What about collective action, such as the actions of the Marxist commune or the welfare state? Do these institutions and their philosophical justifications not trouble a theory of atomistic individualism? Well, that depends. Is subject-verb agreement a mere formalism or a habit? imposed upon the mind by the structure of social interaction in language? Is subject's predicates a valid statement? And does it make sense? Can Marxism are self-contradictory ever make sense? Individuals choose between alternatives, but these alternatives are defined as al- as definite alternatives in an historical empirical context, and time and space do not provide us with repeatable spatiotemporal frames. We only know of costs in the realm of deductive theory because costs are not seen in empirical results of action and exchange. We only see what is revealed after something is preferred, especially where statistics are being bandied about as economic evidences by hopeless macroeconomists, since preferences are positive actions with definite historical empirical content. Action aims at the future, manipulating means in the present. We thus step outside of language and so serves meaning value Fisher to arrive at truths transcending words. In deconstructing a sentence, the Marxian Derridians are generally not apt to admit that deconstruction is guided by a constructive value that is identical with all structural values, which is an interest in future goods. After all, human action presupposes a rational procedure, and this praxeological procedure's truths are independent of place and time precisely because human beings can only perform actions in space and time within non-repeatable temporal frames. We do not perform godlike actions or non-actions that occur in no space and no time sufficient to cover all objectives. That one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. That individuals set goals and undertake the disutility of labor to achieve ends, such that they can obtain present goods instead of vaguely defined and unsure-to-come future goods, presupposes a theory of interest in human action itself. Action presupposes rationality, and the science of the non presupposes irrationality after the fact of rationality. If homo agens is rational man, then deconstruction presupposes homo indolens, namely, he who never feels the pain of loss in cost-benefit analysis because he can do all things in all times under whatever conditions might exist. Homo indolens can make a startling claim, which is a priori true. I am never wrong. Homo indolence does not act, and therefore he risks nothing. Homo agents can only admit that he is not omnipotent, not omniscient, and yet knows with absolute certainty how he does not know the things that he already knows. Homo agents knows what a cost is, and she knows that she sacrifices experiences and observations of potential states of utility in time and space whenever action occurs. The difference in deconstruction's valuation lies only in the goal set in the distance, which is actually difference, 
The Derridean has not set the same ultimate value or absolute value upon communication as a means to linguistic social cooperation, since the Derridean acolyte refuses to incur cost in anything more than a momentary decision. The Derridean refuses to be satisfied by anything more than deferring conclusions to further investigations. Like a Buddhist sitting down to meditation in order to actively and purposefully stave off valuations by engaging in the deferral of action, the Derridean invites the contemplation of difference in order to stave off preference by deferring preference. He or she has used a constructive methodology to arrive at communication, and then used communication as a means to social misdirection directed towards another end. Within the linguistic social grooming in which we are engaged, the deconstructionist picks a political target. Or otherwise, why would one direct semantic generalization to another sphere of valuation? The rupture and event in deconstruction is simply the act of asking the question, what if I go to the left instead of the right? Most deconstructionists would be willing to admit even this, perhaps. But they would not admit this if they glanced ahead and discovered that reading itself, or speech by that same measure, is a form of communication, a purpose-driven action, driven by subjective ex-ante value. With comprehension as its goal and language as its interpretive means, used then as a means to an end, namely, the derivation of a sophisticated interpretation, or the rooting out of difference, weighed against competing alternative judgments. This treatise is a form of communication as well, that will only ever meet your scrutiny if you have exerted a prior demand or I have anticipated that demand. Its psychic costs of production, which are only ever reaped by the author and the publishers, will only ever be determined after the facts of reader valuation, critical appraisal, and purchase, in this case, consensus approval or a download. If you, as the listener, believe that you listen to this argument with a mind of wax, or as a tabula rasa upon which a master inscribes his runes, then you are certainly free to act as if this were, in fact, the case. Communication is a two-way exchange at all times, and it is often a crossroads between many more exchanges. You will continue to listen to this discussion as long as it remains higher on your marginal preference scale than not listening to this discussion ranks at any point in time. Perhaps you shall lay this podcast aside to eat a meal. Later on, you might take it up for a couple of minutes. You may find that the audiobook version or the Culture and Anarchy podcast reading of this text better suits your needs. If you are listening to this discussion in bed, you should inevitably place it aside and go to sleep. The Marxian is likely to throw it away in anger. Deconstruction, then, falls quite flat not upon its purely empirical analysis of language, but upon its presumption that difference could lead to an infinite regress of non, because language, action, and rationality are strictly empirical phenomena. The aporia, which is the moment of undecidability that readers meet in a text or in a speech, where the determination of meaning takes place out of quantum indeterminacy present in rhetoric and the ambiguity of words, namely Castellani's imitative craft, always arrives at recognition that the a priori of action is a necessary axiom upon which epistemology rests. The aporia does not even exist without a recognition of the axiom, which is the necessary exertion of a rational action. Costs do not exist for homo indolence, and cost can only be known if the a priori of action is true. Costs are incurred by homo agents in action, and this fundamentally Western, a priori true proposition defies historical empirical context, the difference principle, and the Derridean notion of the West's metaphysics of presence. 
What on earth could be left in deconstruction that could justify Derrida's controversial honorary doctorate from Cambridge? The aporia is the historical recognition that the individual has placed value upon a referent or sign in prior action. It is a historical market price without its necessary transaction. When the deconstructionist reader or auditor appraises the value of a word in a string of sentences, the meaning appears to be endlessly deferred, namely, the price includes other exchanges for other alternative uses quite separate from the one that is present in the exchange in which one particular individual engages. Slang terms like fresh have multiple meanings, but the meanings do not have two meanings. The reader or auditor throws out a common value for the word or string of sentences, its quantum of meaning, which only then calls into play a difference, or an opposition. Raw calls into existence not cooked, which reverbs and calls into existence cooked, which also calls into existence not raw, cooking, cookery, elephants, etc., ad infinitum, forming a chain of infinite regress that is similar to the chain of infinite regress that arises when one enters into theological speculation. Who created the earth? God. Who created God? And so on. The chain of infinite semantic regression, deconstruction science of the non, is driven onward only because homo indolens is indifferent to any decisive definition of terms other than difference itself. Sooner or later, one always arrives at the fact that of human action and the a priori of action. Some call this God, and grant this deduction an active agency with a vivacious and unpredictable personality. I call it deductive theory and grammar. The aporia is not a pause, but a choice. It is a necessary choice that has already been made. The aporia has already been argued, in advance. Undecidability is a decision that is made in an argument that has already taken place, guided by a value extrinsic to the word, upon which the actor has also decided to hesitate. But this is a conscious hesitation, achieved through discursive reason and the valuation of difference. A true aporia would be something akin to Alzheimer's, or, alternatively, a market price within deductive economic theory. And we would have to start from scratch again at every rhetorical gesture and language if we were guided by a differential non. If we were not satisfied with any one meaning, the chain of the word and for possible meanings would run on forever until we finally decide to settle upon a satisfactory result by exercising an or, a conjunction that signifies a human choice between alternatives. Nevertheless, meaning is not compounded, inflated, and swelled into a macro-meaning capable of being pronounced undecidable. There is no meaning if the reader does not choose to interpret. There is no price if an actor does not calculate rationally between alternatives. But if the reader does not choose to interpret a text or to engage in the derivation of meaning and value, then the reader has chosen to do something else, such as reading some other text, going for a drive, or simply watching TV. This is all well and good. No human actor escapes meaning and value because human action is teleological by nature. Macroeconomic phenomena, namely structuralism, are indeed only the results of individual valuations, and their structural essence is troubled by rhetorical variability on the individual level, which is logically and temporally antecedent to the perceived macro structure. The confusion that would be propagated by a true aporia has generally caused rationalist critics of deconstruction to shake their heads and toss Derrida aside as a petty nuisance. Deconstruction has never gone so far as to jump into the aporia with any real sense of commitment. 
Probably because even Derrida's Paeans to Alzheimer's are not very appealing to the hardcore Derridaeans left at Yale and any other university still struggling through the non. The rationalist realizes that deconstruction went left when everyone else decided that they were satisfied with what was roughly right and what was necessarily true. Free play is a decision and a means directed by an end, and communication is the means to an end in language constructs somewhere along the way. Political agendas and social agendas redirect a logical text towards a deconstruction, guided by a subversive value. Whatever that subversive non-value is, it is consciously and pretentiously subversive. And one way of looking at the science of the non, deconstruction is indifference itself if accepted on its own grounds because it is rooted in everything outside of a definite preference. We are all speaking individual or private languages directed by subjective values, but language is defined by context, determined through logical analysis, and cooperation in the historical empirical realm. Objectivity, then, would be impossible if we chose a facile definition of objectivity, as opposed to the apodictically a priori true axiom at the root of praxeology. Why shouldn't we choose a facile definition if such a definition is possible? Can one deny objectivity? Denials of objectivity, namely, objectivity does not exist, are objective, and hence self-contradictory. Can one deny objectivity? Consider the grammatical principle of subject-verb agreement. Does a period anything really true? God don't, do not, exist, is difficult to explain without some assumptions. The speaker does not know proper grammar, namely, what was called grammar amongst the Greeks, such that it should account for the fact that God is presumably a single thing that cannot do something pluralistically. God does all things may assume something that human beings cannot imagine, namely, a singular subject acting pluralistically. But the grammar no longer suggests something illogical, as opposed to God do all things, in which the grammar and the sense both imply plurality in singular actions, which is certainly a mess of logic when one imagined how a singular subject can undertake pluralistic actions, destroying singularity in action, that allow him to then simultaneously achieve plurality in all actions singularly. Either God acts singularly for pluralistic ends, or else God is plural and acts pluralistically to achieve multiple ends. Subject-verb agreement, in a way, is what divides monotheism from polytheism, socialism from capitalism. Either singular subjects act singularly, and plural objects are a combination of individually acting subjects, or else singular subjects act pluralistically and plural subjects act singularly. Individuals may or may not make the same claims as pluralistically acting singular subjects. Cogito is not interchangeable with cogitamas. Clearly, subject-verb agreement has something objective in it. We have so far seen that we cannot deny subjectivity without engaging in value judgments, or else forcefully ripping the will out of each and every individual being to grind them into a mess of pottage under a Marxian millstone. By understanding the difference between theory and history, we can separate logic from valuation. What, indeed, is objectivity, if not the recognition that subjects should agree? Hint, agree is a verb. What if subjects decide to disagree? Well, the objective standpoint is generally wrong. You had better have a damn good reason. 
reason, and logic, based on several self-evident axioms, have always been held in highest esteem by academicians and responsible social groomers, as opposed to social engineers, and generally for a pretty damn good reason. They were, in the long run, the most elegant and successful systems of social grooming that did not require of the groomers a specific class consciousness. In other words, reason does not require theological speculation. The fact that many logicians were also men and women who fell short of logic's dictates when addressing social arrangements marks them as pragmatists in the world. It does not justify pragmatism. Compromises are not a theory. Even though compromise, as giving up an abstractly preferred state of affairs for one that is obtainable through means at hand, conforms to economic theory. The welfare state is a compromise. It is a compromise between those who want to steal the possessions of their neighbors without their neighbors' consent and the politicians who want political power by sanctioning that system of theft and bribery. Those who complain and raise an objection to violations of private property by politicians and their lickspittles, they are not part of the compromise. And yet, their property, achieved through labor, calculation, economization of resources, that property is antecedent to the theft. Parasites may have an independent existence, it is true, but parasites require a healthy mammal upon which to prey. Let us consider a scenario. The deer in the headlights scenario. A fully grown buck named Jack steps into a deserted country street in an attempt to get to the other side. He makes his way to the middle of the road and hears a blaring alarm in the near distance, sounded with punctuated urgency. Jack looks up into a pair of blinding lights, blinking furiously to clear his vision. He asks himself, What is this subject? Or is it an object? Am I an object in this subject's eyes? Which of us is self another? What if we reversed our places? Who has the right of way? Which is left and which is right? Does that not depend upon our relative placement? Should I go left or should I go right? Or... In the carnage that ensues, we spot the remains of poor little Jack. We shake our heads in pity and draw the moral. Alas, poor Jack... He ought to have exercised his conjunction. Sadly, he deconstructed. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold time. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much money now that we have to borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pocket. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. I can't cut anything until we change.
change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas, but I never realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics, socio-economic The wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for ten years. the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their track Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.